0: I'm Tom McKinnon.
1: And I'm Susan Moran. This is News. How on Earth for Tuesday, April 19th, 2011.
0: It's the science and technology show that makes you smarter. Coming up, the natural gas boom and its controversial drilling
2: practices. We're paying a higher price than the prices to pump by poisoning our environment.
1: And a one year anniversary look at the human impacts of the BP oil disaster in the Gulf. Although the well
3: is capped for people along the Gulf Coast, this disaster is far from over.
0: Now the news. Just when you thought it was safe to go back to the grocery store, Brianna Draxler shocks us with news about meat safety.
4: Antibiotics are commonly used to keep cows and other livestock disease-free, but they may cause diseases in the people who eat their meat. A recent study shows that such antibiotic use has led to resistant strains of bacteria that persist in the meat all the way to the grocery store. Researchers at the Translational Genomics Research Institute, tested meat from 26 grocery stores in five U.S. cities. They found that nearly half of the beef, chicken, pork, and turkey sampled was contaminated with Staphylococcus aureus, or Staph bacteria. The Staph bacteria can cause skin infections and pneumonia, and DNA testing showed that the contamination came from the meat itself. To make matters worse, the bacteria in half of those contaminated samples were resistant to at least three types of antibiotics. That means antibiotics are useless as treatment. Cooking the meat kills the bacteria, but handling and cross-contamination in the kitchen still pose threats to human health. The study was published last week in the Journal of Clinical Infectious Diseases. It was the first to look at those bacteria in the food supply. The government regularly tests commercial meat for four antibiotic-resistant bacteria, but staff isn't one of them. For KGNU, this is Brianna Draxler.
0: Space buffs out there know that Saturday, April 23rd, is Astronomy Day. Fisk Planetarium and Summers-Bosch Observatory at the CU Boulder campus will be hosting special events from noon until midnight. There will be special displays and presentations on such diverse topics as the search for extrasolar planets, different kinds of light waves astronomers use to observe stars, black holes, and even the Big Bang, planetarium shows, rocket launches, and even prizes. Weather permitting, the solar telescope will be open during the day to observe the sun, and a wide range of telescopes will be available at night for public stargazing. The event is free and open to the public.
1: Among half of all households in the U.S., your main heating source is natural gas. So if you've driven along I-70 west of Glenwood Springs through rifle, parachute, and other towns, you're familiar with how much drilling has transformed Colorado's landscape in recent years. Natural gas production is expanding rapidly, fueled by politicians, energy industry officials, and even environmental groups touting it as the cleaner alternative to coal-fired power plants. But some recent studies suggest that natural gas releases Far more methane, a greenhouse gas actually more potent than carbon dioxide, than previously thought. And on the ground, natural gas production has wreaked havoc on some wildlife species, as well as on humans living near wells. And recently, largely due to a drilling practice called hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, a lot of natural gas that had been considered too costly to pry out of shale rock formations is now being drilled. The practice entails basically high-pressure injecting water, sand, and a cocktail of chemicals deep underground to break open the shale formations and release gas deposits. Fracking has become a public health threat. So we have two guests on the show today to shed some light on these issues. Steve Torbett is the Regional Director for the National Wildlife Federation in the Rocky Mountain region. He's with us in the studio. Mr. Torbett, welcome to the show. Thank you. And we also have, on the phone line, Stephen Hall, who's Communication Director for the Colorado Bureau of Land Management. Mr. Hall joins us via phone. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, Stephen Hall, I want to start with you. So, how much is Colorado producing now, you know, generally speaking, of natural gas and and relative to other states?
5: Well, I I can only speak to what's occurring on federal lands, and in Colorado, um, the the gas production on federal lands is about 10 percent, typically on average, of the overall oil and gas activity. We've certainly seen an increase in gas production in Colorado, and, and you hit, it, hit the nail on the head. It's, it's due to hydraulic fracturing, and that's opened up a lot of formations that were previously inaccessible. And the switch away from coal to fuel power plants, as you know, here in Colorado, uh, state law was passed that mandated that that occur, and so there's obviously been more interest in drilling for more natural gas to meet some of that demand.
1: So then versus even 10 years ago, like what was the the last recent peak in production in the early 80s or, or when and where are we relative to that?
5: Well, in terms of, of natural gas wells, Colorado really peaked in 2008 with 8,000 total wells drilled that year. Um, that would be on state, private and federal lands. We, we saw a peak there because natural gas prices started to drop, quite frankly, because production was starting to keep a better pace with demand. So as as the price of natural gas started to decline, you saw a lot more p- folks looking at natural gas as an alternative fuel source, both for coal and potentially to fuel vehicles. So you've seen a great deal of investment in the infrastructure of natural gas production.
1: Um, and then in, in Colorado, so what's the breakdown of the drilling that's going on on BLM and federal land versus state and private, and just describe those distinctions?
5: Okay, well, in 2010, there were 5,500 wells overall drilled in Colorado, and about 710 of those wells were on federal lands. So a little under 10% were wells that involved the Bureau of Land Management, which manages the public's mineral estate. Those wells generated about $200 million in direct royalties, half of which goes to the state of Colorado, and it's really an important part of the economy, particularly in rural parts of the state.
1: Right. And and then, as I mentioned before, we've got this fairly recent, at least the the new practice, a fairly recent form of um, high-pressure drilling. Could you describe just what it takes to do this hydraulic fracturing and, and why it's so
5: important economically and otherwise? Sure. Well, the, the notion that fracking is new is really not accurate. Ever since people mm-hmm. have been drilling wells, they've been fracturing wells, and it used to be as sophisticated as dropping dynamite or nitroglycerin down a hole. <laughs> so the, the notion of breaking up these formations has been around as long as drilling. What is new is using high-pressure technique to fracture those wells thousands of feet below the surface. And that is, it's, it's been a fairly common practice for about the last 10 years, but it's become increasingly refined and, and more effective from a gas production point of view. And it's opened up a lot of formations that were previously inaccessible.
1: And it's high-pressure, and describe some of the chemicals.
5: Um, You know, there are a variety of chemicals that are used in a variety of things as simple as walnut shells. (laughs) What has made fracturing, I think, as controversial as it's been, is there is no requirement that industry disclose what is in those fracking materials. And it's not something the BLM regulates. Regulation of what is in fracking chemicals, that, that cocktail really falls to the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission here in Colorado and also to the EPA. What I think has fueled a lot of the recent controversy about fracking is really what's occurred in the mid-Atlantic states and the Midwest, where you've had areas that don't have the robust regulatory framework at the state level that Colorado has. These are areas that have never had natural gas development before, and I think they're scrambling to figure out the right way to regulate things as simple as what do you do, how do you dispose of the waste fracking material. Those are things that most of the Western states have wrestled with for a number of years and I think have done a pretty good job but even of the managing we- the, the dangers.
1: So you're referring to like the Marcellus Shale area in Pennsylvania and others?
5: Correct, and oh. those are areas that had had oil production a long time ago, but it's, it's relatively new for them to have large scale natural gas development occurring.
1: So in your mind and from the BLM position, is this practice safe, both for humans and for wildlife?
5: Well, I think we manage the risks as well as we can. <clears throat> In Colorado, on public lands, we have not had an instance where fracking fluids have contaminated a public water source or domestic water supply. The, on public lands, we have a much more stringent um, environmental review and public comment period than any other development that occurs in Colorado. But it, seems like, been,
1: it seems like there have been a lot of cases around Rifle and uh, Divide Creek, where there have been sightings of not only contaminated creek, but you know sinks. Basically, tap water blowing up in people's houses and lawsuits and some law settlements already, and that's just yeah. Those
5: areas are regulated by the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission. Where those instances occurred, they did not involve public lands and public minerals. And I think there's the jury still out in some senses whether or not and what the cause of some of those instances were and you really have to ask the Colorado Oil and Gas Conservation Commission to comment on that they're the ones who regulate what occurs on private and state lands
1: right so and we're having this interview today partly because um, you guys at the BLM are having this public forum next Monday night or Monday evening in Golden to address the issue talk a little bit about what precipitated this and what you're hoping to achieve.
5: Okay. Well, the Department of the Interior had, given a lot of the concerns that are expressed, wanted to take a look at hydrofracking and put together some forums that would both educate the public about what's going on with hydrofracking as well as solicit input on what we possibly should be doing differently. So we put together these forums throughout the country. There's one in North Dakota, there's one in Arkansas, and there's one here in Denver. The one in Denver will be on April 25th from 4 to 9 p.m. at the Denver Marriott West. And we're going to have a panel that represents the environmental community, the wildlife community, oil and gas industry, state regulators, as well as the BLM. We're going to have a couple of hours of discussion and education from those different perspectives and points of view and then have an opportunity for the public to comment.
1: Thank you. Um, I want to bring in Steve Torbett, who's here in the studio from the National Wildlife Federation's Rocky Mountain Division. So what would you say, from all your years' experience working with wildlife and, and the habitat, what are the impacts primarily of on, on wildlife and their environment?
2: Well, there's there's two things that we concentrate on, and first is the um, uh fragmentation of the habitat the above ground aspects of oil and gas drilling and you know those are very significant we're seeing the industrialization of many rural areas of Colorado Wyoming and New Mexico where once um, previously undisturbed habitat is being turned into an industrial zone. The oil and gas companies are putting in man camps, roading areas that were never roaded before. The Piance Creek Road, where I worked 30 years ago, you can hardly even drive on because all the haul trucks who uh, drive very fast. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of roadkill for the deer in that area once known as the Deer Factory of Colorado. Below ground, it is a little bit harder to uh, get a handle on the situation. I disagree with Steve from the BLM um, on a few things. Number one, the federal government owns a lot of federal minerals below private and state surface, so you can't just look at surface ownership and uh, say that... um, you know whether or not those wells are uh, have the BLM has any jurisdiction, and also the BLM has an affirmative duty to look at uh, the the process of developing those wells, including some of the uh, chemicals that they put down the hole and uh, the effects on the environment. NEPA requires a hard look at the effects of any development on the environment, including the downhole stuff. Now. Uh, He's right in that the Colorado Oil and Gas Commission uh, regulates the downhole aspects of this, and this is exactly why a few years ago the state legislature unanimously passed a bill to um, to – force uh, the companies to take a harder look at their impacts quite honestly I've been working in this business for 30 years mm-hmm. and the energy companies are very cavalier uh, I don't I can't tell you how many times I've heard we don't have any impacts on wildlife and fish don't worry go away be happy and part of the part of the issue uh, in the Marcellus shale in Pennsylvania New York Maryland is that um, number one there's a lot of people there a lot of the stuff that happens uh, in the West happens in remote areas and there's not very much over Mm-hmm. But when you're developing uh, wells where there's a lot of people, there's a lot of eyes watching you, a lot of concern for where the fracking fluids are being dumped.
1: So we just have about a minute and a half. I just want to ask, so how would you rank this and its environmental track record relative to, say, um, wind farms? and concentrating solar power, you know, vast stretches of mirrors across the desert.
2: Well, we have a common concern with energy development in that um, the BLM does not have a good track record of doing full cumulative assessments and doing it right. Siting is key, no matter if it's wind, solar, or Um, oil and gas, and so you have to take a hard look, especially if you're concerned about wildlife. You have to take a hard look up front, and if it means moving it, moving a well, moving a solar plant, then if you want the critters around and you're not (laughs) going to have a devastated environment, then you have to take that hard look first.
1: So just a little bit of time left, and I want to come back to um, Stephen Hall. But So there was a report released Saturday by uh, the... House Committee on Energy and Commerce, including our representative here, Diana DeGette, that lists all the chemicals, saying for the first time it's this comprehensive investigation of 579 or something chemicals that are used, um, many of them carcinogenic or known to be carcinogenic and toxic. Um, Stephen Hall, from the BLM's perspective, how do you view this? I mean, Diana DeGette has been pushing for the so-called FRAC Act to regulate and to force companies to disclose more of the chemicals.
5: Well, we we don't take position on pending legislation, just being appropriate as a federal employee, but, but I think that investigation and other things are, are part of why we're having these forums, and we hope to hear from people and see if we ought to have a different regulatory framework to address these things and if federal law supports us addressing those things. One one quick correction to what Steve was saying, the uh, 710 wells in 2010, that includes federal surface as well as federal minerals. We really are uh, less than 10% of the activity in Colorado. We get the lion's share of the press and the publicity because we have such an open and public process.
1: Well, thanks. And so once again, um, we've got to close, but next Monday from 4 to 9 at the Denver Marriott West in Golden. There'll be the BLM Forum. So thanks very much. That was Steve Torbett of the National Wildlife Federation and Stephen Hall of the BLM in Colorado.
0: You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show. I'm Tom McKinnon. Ted Burnham has a feature on the anniversary of the BP oil blowout disaster. Ted?
6: Thanks, Tom. Tomorrow marks one year since the Deepwater Horizon blowout, which killed 11 oil rig workers and began spewing oil into the Gulf of Mexico. Before the well was capped in September, 200 million gallons of oil had been released. The spill shut down fisheries, coated beaches, and has had a lasting effect on communities across the Gulf Coast. Joining us now to talk about the social fallout of the BP disaster is Liesl Ritchie, Assistant Director of the Natural Hazards Center. She studies the social impact of disasters from the 1989 Exxon Valdez oil spill to last year's earthquake in Haiti. One of her current projects draws on lessons learned in the years since the Exxon Valdez to predict and prepare for the long-term effects of the Deepwater Horizon accident will have on the Gulf Coast. Liesl Ritchie, welcome to How on Earth.
3: Thanks for having me.
6: Now, when we talk about the social impact of a disaster, what exactly does that mean?
3: Typically what we're referring to at that point uh, is social disruption at the community level, among groups within the community, as well as within families and and individuals. And down on the Gulf Coast, what we're also looking at uh, is disruption uh, to the social environment all along the coast between communities and even between states. So in your
6: work you've pointed out that a lot of these communities are renewable resource communities that are particularly vulnerable to environmental disasters. What makes them so vulnerable?
3: What makes them vulnerable inherently uh, are their ties to the natural environment, Uh, particularly when we think uh, of communities like fishing communities whose existences depend entirely uh, on harvesting uh... these natural resources uh... from the sea uh... it's not as if they can simply pack up and move somewhere else and translate that skill set necessarily uh... we also have a situation where the uh... cultural uh... and the daily way of life um, in these communities revolves around these renewable uh... natural resources and so it's not just an economic existence that ties them to the natural resources but rather it's a cultural one it's a way of life.
6: So a lot of these impacts it seems were widely reported at the time that the fisheries had been shut down, tourism declined because the beaches were all uh, covered in oil. Now that the initial cleanup efforts are over and the fisheries and the beaches have mostly been reopened, I'm sure some people are wondering isn't that enough to set these communities right again? And it turns out that's not really true, isn't it?
3: Uh, You're right, exactly. Uh, One of the things that we're dealing with here uh, is the notion of invisible trauma uh... to the natural environment as well as to the social environment and by, by that what we're referring to is the fact that even the physical scientists the marine biologists uh... and so forth they can't agree on the exact uh... extent and the nature of the dam- damage to the gulf uh... we have reports that are talking uh, about how quickly the gulf is recovering but a few pages into those reports you're also seeing that there's really no way to predict the long-term impacts uh, and that they indicate that in fact it's likely to be years if not a decade or more before people really understand fully uh... the nature of the uh... the the, and the extent of the damage there uh... just as we saw with the aftermath of the Exxon valdez when it took several years for the herring population in prince william sound to crash Although Exxon would dispute that that there were any ties to the oil spill, uh, there are other scientists who indicate that, in fact, there are ties.
6: So in researching this topic, I I was struck by the fact that the cleanup effort actually ends up causing some of these lasting problems for the communities. Can you tell us about that process?
3: I think from a a perspective of my colleagues and I, um, who've been looking at the Exxon Valdez oil spill and and this bill and others in, in between this is one of the most frustrating aspects uh, of, of these kinds of disasters these are organizational processes the claims process uh... the cleanup processes how contracts are led to work on cleanup and response and mitigation activities um, these are things that we could learn from uh... in from past events um, you know the conflict that arises when uh, certain people are selected um, over others to get contracts. There doesn't seem uh, among the locals to be a clear uh, and um, effective way of letting those contracts. That that results in a situation where there are inequities in terms of who gets these contracts, who then is making money, who then can support their families. Uh, there's concern uh, that uh, you know people from the outside, without much of a stake in the community, are just coming in, making money, and leaving. Uh, these are processes, again, that could be addressed. Uh, they're replicating themselves from, uh, you know, 20-plus years ago after the Exxon Valdez, and, and that's a real shame.
6: So it sounds like the, it's, the whole process is causing stress both within the communities, within individuals. What ways could we address that? And is the government or BP doing anything to address those sort of psychological aspects?
3: Uh, there does seem to be uh, a more concerted effort to address issues related to public health, But one of the things that's so difficult about these technological disasters and and this uh, disaster associated with this invisible environmental trauma is that the effects are difficult to tell in the environment, and they're also difficult to discern among the population. Um, BP would probably like nothing uh, more than to say, you know, these people who are having problems now were already screwed up to begin with. But in fact, what we're seeing uh, is increased reports of substance abuse in these fishing communities, domestic violence and times um, first time reports of domestic violence Uh, we also have increased suicides uh, increased um, violence in uh, the public school settings and so forth so these issues are very real but again um, BP in particular would would like to indicate that this is not their responsibility uh, and so most of the funds are going uh, to support environmental uh, related issues uh, and public health and they'd rather avoid quite frankly the mental health issues
6: well, we only have a couple of seconds left, but when we look back at the Exxon-Valdez spill, we can see that the damage is still being felt more than 20 years later. How long should we be prepared to deal with some of these impacts from the the Deepwater Horizon accident in the Gulf?
3: Well, it's hard to predict exactly, but what I would say is uh, that there are hundreds of thousands of people down along the Gulf Coast relative to the relatively small population that we looked at uh, up in Alaska uh, we're looking at increased economic complexity, coupled with the, uh, the global environmental um, movements. Um, and we're also looking at the environmental um, damage being uncertain. And as long as that's uncertain, I think we're going to be looking um, at years of uncertainty and chronic social impacts uh, along the Gulf Coast.
6: I've been speaking with Liesl Ritchie of the Natural Hazards Center about the social effects still being felt on the Gulf Coast one year after the BP oil spill. Liesl, thank you for coming in. Thanks very much. For How on Earth, I'm Ted Burnham.
0: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. The executive producer is Joel Parker. Our engineer is Ted Burnham. Tim Morton wrote our theme music. Tom Wassinger produced it. Additional music from Ni Tagoe.
1: Can't listen to How on Earth at a regular time? No worries. Just go to howonearthradio.org and click on the button to subscribe to our podcast.
0: And if you're a musician, don't forget about our ongoing contest for a new theme song. Check out the contest rules at howonearthradio.org slash contest.
1: And send your feedback to the KGNU comment line at 303 447 For How on Earth, the KGNU Science and Technology Show, I'm Susan Moran.
0: And I'm Tom McKinnon.